at chapter 1. In just a moment, we'll begin reading in verse 29. As you're turning there, you know, King David was known by God himself as a man after God's own heart. And uh, what accolades for someone to have, especially coming from God. But that certainly did not mean that David was perfect, nor did it mean that King David had a carefree life. In fact, there were many stresses in his life. But very interestingly, David's greatest threat came not from the giant Goliath, nor from his jealous predecessor, King Saul, who sought David's life. Uh, but the biggest threat came from his own household. A young boy born, his son, whom he dearly loved, named Absalom. We don't have time to go through all of Absalom's story, but Absalom um, was a vengeful individual, taking his own brother's life and became much a problem to his father, David. Not only did he kill David's other son, but he embarrassed David publicly. But most devastatingly, Absalom shrewdly tried to draw the people of Israel away from his father that they might give him their allegiance. And the scripture tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 15 that while his father David was king, that Absalom would set up camp very early in the morning at the city gates and as people began to matriculate toward the city, he would make judgments and convince them. And basically, in essence, what he was saying is, I care about you. I'm out here among you. My father doesn't care for you. Let me rule over you. And his power became so great that his father David actually had to flee the city. And I was thinking this week in regard to Absalom, he really brought to truth the saying that we hear so often, uh, keep your enemies close and your friends closer, you might say, in this case, family, because Absalom turned against his father. Very simply, Absalom said, I must increase and so my father must decrease. That's the exact opposite of what we have seen in regard to John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I must decrease and God must increase. You know, John uh, possessed a great influence and a great power. He had the respect and the fear of the religious leaders, the favor of the masses. We saw that Jesus himself said, among those born of women, none would be greater except for those who were in Christ. Yet as we look at John's life, he didn't consider all of these accolades, all of this affirmation to be something. In fact, he remained very humble. In fact, he said that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And, and no more do we see that evident than in the verses that we're getting ready to read. As John begins to hand off his disciples, people he had poured into, that they might be everything that Jesus would have them be. Look with me at John 1 and verse 29. It says, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, 
Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I did not know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which is translated Peter. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word today, we thank you uh, for John the Baptist, an example to each of us. And as we study your word, open our eyes to the truth of it today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we look at this, we're looking at this subject really over these uh, few weeks. We have a story to tell. And today we're going to look at his story and my story. And, and in this case, my, in the case of John the Baptist, was John's own story. And twice we see that uh, he did not know who Jesus was at first. And I think that's very interesting because God only can reveal who Jesus is to us. He realized about Jesus that he came to deliver from sin. And as Jesus approached John, John said, here is the one that I have been speaking about. We have a story to tell. We've already noted both his story and our story. His story is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning as we look at these verses today. And I want to apologize first because I forgot to release the kids. But it's Fifth Sunday. That's right. We don't have that. So I didn't. I didn't mess up. Sometimes I get up here and I think, boy, what's going on? All right. And our kids have been so great. Wasn't that great today? Wasn't it great? Uh, I, I pa my wife will be proud to know I passed my candy to somebody else. And uh, that, that's great that I did that. But we have a story to tell. And we want to look at that today. And every one of us, we have the ability in us, if we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, to tell his story, the gospel. We're going to look at that very simply today. But also we can tell our story. And so I want to look first at Jesus' story. And we see it in John chapter 1, really verses 29 through 34. Jesus' story is the gospel. Jesus is the subject of the gospel. The Greek word euangelion, from which we get our word evangelism, speaks to good news. And, and it is speaking of a very specific type of good news. For instance, good news can come in a lot of different forms. 
You, you could have uh, the news that you just inherited a million dollars and that would be good. That would be great news to you. Or, or maybe the good news would be the person that you love, you found out actually loves you and so that would be good news. Or maybe that you would be able to get ice cream after lunch. And so good news can come in many forms, but specifically here in this context, the good news is that God in his mercy toward us gives us forgiveness through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That God is gracious to us, that as good as we might try to be, we may fall short, but God has placed on Jesus our sin. Jesus died for you and rose again. And we must understand at the time of our text, there was a great fervor. There was a great energy. It, it followed about 400 years where things had been relatively si silent on the prophetic scene. And now we hear, or the people of that day began to hear that Jesus was coming. And they had all of these aspirations. They believed that Jesus would free them from the power of the Roman Empire. That Jesus would be their great physical and military believer, that they would finally again be able to govern themselves, but their understanding of the good news was wrong and short-sighted. The good news that God was bringing in Jesus Christ was not a temporal relief from a physical power, but an eternal relief from the power of sin and the eternal life that only Jesus Christ can give us. I want to look today at what John has to say about Jesus in this good news. And we see a whole lot said in the very first verse that we read, verse 29, where John saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we see a few things in this verse. And I don't want to jump beyond it and move until we have really looked at it. And the first thing we see in, in what John said of Jesus is this, Jesus is God's lamb. Twice John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God. He says it here in verse 29. He says it in verse 36. And the listeners understood at least in part the role of a lamb. A lamb under the Jewish sacrificial system was offered during the Passover and represented God's deliverance as the people took the blood of the lamb and placed it over the door. But also in the daily sacrifices, there were the morning sacrifices, there were the evening sacrifices, and the representative of a home would take a lamb offered as that family sacrifice and offer it at the altar. And so we see at the beginning here one distinction. They understood what a lamb was, but this was not just any lamb. This was the lamb of God, not offered by man, but offered by God. And so we see a second truth, that Jesus came to take away sin. He came as a lamb to take upon himself our sin, a sacrificial lamb. Jesus went to the cross without resistance as a lamb being led to the slaughter with no resistance. Jesus was innocent. There was no sin found in him. The scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, he who knew no sin took our sin upon us that we might have the righteousness of God. He was unblemished. Uh, not a bone of his body was broken. Even in crucifixion, he was without blemish. 
But finally and most importantly, he was our propitiatory sacrifice. His sacrifice, that is, was intentional and effective. You know, not all sacrifices we make are effective. I laughed at the story of a man that loved a young woman, and he wanted that young woman to marry, marry him. And so he went out, and he drove all the way across town to find the most special stationery that he could find. And, and then he drove to the post office, and he was looking for the most exquisite stamp, not just any stamp, but a special stamp. He, he spent time writing and rewriting the love note to the lady, making all of these sacrifices. And then he sent the letter, and she married the postman. <laughs> not every sacrifice that we make is effective. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I want to look at verse 25. Romans 3.25 God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He is our atoning sacrifice. And that speaks very specifically to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When he died, he took upon himself our sin. You know, there, there's the word propitiation and expiation. Expiation carries the idea of sin being canceled. Propitiation doesn't just mean that sin is canceled, but it's canceled as it came upon Jesus Christ. And so when we look at expiation, the, the object of that is sin, but in propitiation, the object is Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, why are you using this $5 word? Because it's very important. Let me illustrate it in a practical way what a propitiation is. Let's imagine uh, you were at work and you had a terrible day at work. Everything went wrong. Then you got in your car and you began to drive home and uh, somebody pulls right in front of you. You're really angry at that person, but you hold it in. Then you get home and your anger just unfolds and you take your books and you just slam them down. And that book takes the brunt of all the frustration. Now, the frustration was the frustration, the book. No, the book was not the frustration. The frustration was everything that came before that, but the book took the brunt of it. That's what Christ did. Now, we have to understand God's anger is not like our anger. God has a righteous anger, a self-controlled anger. And God's anger is his righteous indignation towards sin. But you see, the holiness of God would not allow God to just neglect sin. And so God had to punish sin, but he took the punishment of the sin upon Jesus. He took upon himself our sin. And so we see not only the propitiation that Christ took the wrath that should have been due us upon himself, but I want you to see the second thing. This lamb came to the world. Now, the Passover, it was very clear that a Passover lamb needed to be offered. 
But when that Passover lamb was offered by that family, it covered only the portals of that home, only that household. It didn't cover the neighbor. The neighbor himself had to do the same. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the morning sacrifices, the evening sacrifices were for an individual, not for all. But Jesus Christ came for the world to pay the price. He died once for all time. So what is his story? His story is this. He loves you. He took upon himself your sin and my sin. He died for us and he arose again that whosoever would believe in him would have right standing with God. Well, let's look at John's story. After telling Jesus' story and speaking the Lamb of God who took away and takes away the sin of the world, we see Jesus' story, the gospel. Now we see John's story, which is a personal account of his experience. We call it a personal testimony. A personal testimony in a Christian's life is a verbal account of your personal experience with the Lord. You do not need to embellish it. You do not need to take someone else's story to prop it up. Very simply put, and we'll see in the case today, it is telling someone about Jesus Christ as you have experienced him. Every Christian has a testimony. Every one of us, we have a story about Jesus. Every Christian's testimony is power-filled. I want to look at John's story here. First, we see he says there was a time he did not know Jesus. Verse 31, he, he says, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 33, I did not know him. In other words, I was thinking this was his cousin, and I only have two first cousins and they both live out of state, but I would recognize them. I saw them a week or two ago. I recognized them. John was a cousin to Jesus. He did not recognize him. Probably they were separated by a great distance. There was not a familiarity. Uh, he did not know him. And the only way a person can truly know Jesus Christ is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 32, and John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. In other words, the Spirit, when you followed the Spirit, John is saying, it rested on Christ. And the Holy Spirit points to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. You know, I can work as hard as I can to try to convince you to believe something. But just as my favorite preacher, Dr. Adrian Rogers, said, anything a preacher can talk you into, somebody else can talk you out of. We're not talking about human reasoning here. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. And so in John's case, he only came to know J Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. But there was a time in his adult life even when he didn't know Jesus. But I want you to see secondly, there was a time when he did come to know Jesus. We see that in verse 33, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. There was a time, John said, when I did not know him, but then I came to know him. Every testimony of a believer, there's a time when you didn't know Christ. Nobody is born a Christian. You don't just become a Christian because you're born into a 
Christian family. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a point in time when every person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. For me, it was in August of 1974. I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last night, we had the opportunity to hear Tony and Addie sing as part of the Commonwealth Chorale. And we were sitting in a part of the church and some of the members who were there, I pointed to the fourth row. I said, that is where I came to know Christ. I remember it. I was watching a movie. The, the Lord Jesus Christ was depicted as being crucified. I normally sat on the other side of the church, but that evening, because there was a projector and a screen, I was convicted that the Lord Jesus Christ died for me, and I pointed to it. Now, I can't tell you the exact time, I can't say it was 736, I can't say. And there are people that may not know every single detail of it, but I'm telling you, if you're saved, there's a point in time where you move from not knowing who Jesus is to knowing who Jesus is. And so John shared that testimony. But I want you to see, being a believer, he became a witness. Notice verse 34. He said, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now look back at, at verse 30, the testimony. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. In both of these verses, John is a witness. He's a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, formerly I didn't know him. I came to know him. And let me tell you about him. Many people shy away from sharing their testimony. And the devil uses that to quieten us up. They think, well, my story isn't as impressive as someone else's. Every story about the Lord is impressive. Oh, I, I'm not that clear about my story. I don't know that I was at the fourth row. Well, if you're not clear about it, pray the Lord. Reveal to me what I need to know. I may not need to know it was 7.59 and 53 seconds, but Lord, I do need to know there was a point when I was saved, have clarity in it. Then others will say, well, no one cares about my story. I would say quite the contrary. People love listening to personal accounts. And so we see that John became a witness for Jesus. He became a witness. But I want you to see that his story was perpetuated. In other words, it didn't stop with him. He told his story, and he told it to two individuals. And we see that really uh, beginning in verse 40, who those were. One of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And it said in verse 41, he first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah telling his own story to Peter. So follow the progression here. John told his story about Jesus. Andrew believed, and Andrew told his story about Jesus, and Peter believed. There's a power in sharing a personal testimony. I wonder, are you willing to share it? Your story may be the very impetus for someone to believe. Andrew's was for Simon to believe, but he didn't stop there. Look at verse 42. And he brought Simon Peter to Jesus. He brought him. I'm excited about the tent revivals this week. 
Andy back there, our buddy Darren, I remember him a year ago at a revival. And as I was thinking about preaching this, at first it didn't come to my mind. The Lord led it to my heart. And Andy may remember that and some others if, if you were there and know Darren. Darren passed away a few months ago from cancer. About a year ago, we were sitting in this tent revival. And a lot of times if I'm not preaching, I try to sit on the periphery because I try to remain incognito. You know, I'm not preaching. And, and so I was on the side and all of a sudden I get a tug on my shirt and Darren's there. And I mean, the preacher's preaching. And Darren said, Rick, you need to come talk to my friend. I brought him and he's sitting over in that truck and he's dying of cancer and he needs to know about Jesus. And so I went around the periphery I shared with this older gentleman. After that, Pastor Terry Tolliver came, shared Christ with him. That man professed Christ, and I believe he actually became a member at St. Andrew's Baptist Church. Both of those men have died, not a year ago. What if Darren had not gone and brought that man there? That man would have had an eternity separated from God. Now both of them are gone and rejoicing in heaven. People, we have a story to tell. We have a story to tell. I'm, I'm preaching out of Jonah chapter 4, my favorite chapter in the Old Testament along with Zechariah 14. And I'm preaching on it on Tuesday night. And the focus is this. We as the church are outside of the city, not in the city. Jonah sat outside of the city hoping God would judge the city. Jonah did the perfunctory responsibility of doing what God called him to do, but he didn't have a heart for it. Jonah should have been in Nineveh continuing to convince the people to repent, but instead he sat outside of the city in his own comfort. We're living in chaotic days today in the churches outside the city. We're coming into our houses of worship. We're not bringing any people. We're not going out and reaching people. And we're all the time we're complaining about where the world is going. We need to be telling the story, bringing people to Jesus. We have an opportunity, May 21st, in outdoor worship service, you'll see some of these cards. They're postcards. We've sent out a lot of them to people we don't know. And if you get one, please don't be offended. They were sent out in bulk. Um, but as we were talking, the most effective way for these to work is not a mass mailing, but a friend to send one to a friend. Sign it put the stamp on it. Some of them even here at the front have stamps on it. And invite people to come with you. I already have two people. One I've already invited. Another one I'm working. I'm going to be working on a third. How will people know if they don't hear? How will they hear if we don't reach them? We must reach them. The beauty of John chapter 1 is John so loved the Lord Jesus Christ, it wasn't about him. He said, let me tell you about him. And then he told Andrew. 
And then Andrew said to Peter, who was at that time named Simon, he said, let me tell you about a one. And then Peter preached at Pentecost and 3,000 individuals plus were saved as a result of that. And that is the goal of the gospel, that it would be perpetuated from person to person, from age to age. Isn't it presumptive for you and I to think the story can stop with us, that we can receive it and be mom when it comes to telling others? We have a story to tell. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, we thank you for ones like Andrew who heard and went. We thank you for ones like Darren Justice who lived in our day, who brought a friend, who took two preachers to this gentleman to share Christ with him and how that gentleman professed you in a public assembly like we have today. Lord, it came verbally through an invitation, through a witness. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to reach out into our community on May 21st in the open air, we pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts, that we would pick up a card here at the front, Lord, or in the vestibule, take that, personally send it this week. And Lord, you may even prompt us to follow up with a call or to say, I'll come pick you up. Lord, however you would lead, we pray you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Invitation as often today is twofold. First, if you have never believed on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world,